0: Hello and welcome back to The Political Outsider, the podcast that takes you inside the world of Westminster politics and thanks for tuning in today. As ever, if you've got any ideas on what you want covered, drop me a line on Twitter, the handle is The Ex Lobbyist, or find us on Facebook under The Political Outsider. Coming up this week, manifestos. They're being written right now, but what exactly are they and why are they important? and then later on we'll talk about the revolving door between politics and business and we'll look at the Westminster committee that makes judgments on the jobs that politicians take once they're out the public eye so first up this week manifestos so all the political parties right now are furiously composing their manifestos ahead of the election due on the 8th of June but what exactly are these documents and why are they important So the manifesto is a list of promises that the party makes to the electorate across every policy area in which they have an interest and they're also meant to demonstrate How much those policies will cost, both individually and in total. So they're really important not only for what's in them, because they give you a sense of what that party wants to do if they if they become the government, but also what they're not going to do. So let me give you an example. There's speculation right now that the Tories aren't going to include the so-called pensions triple lock in their manifesto. That would be a major change, and it's a subject of a lot of debate. So it's really important when you're looking at a manifesto to think about what's in them and what not but you might ask well who actually reads these manifestos well actually nobody does and that's a good thing because none of the parties stick to them exactly if they're elected into government and frankly also they're very long and very boring but they're really important because they provide a standard against which the parties are held to account but here's the thing Manifestos are not written in a vacuum, so the leader of the party probably doesn 't write them because they 're too busy campaigning, so it 's delegated to someone else now that might be an MP or it might be a party official, and that person doesn 't sit in a darkened room and dream up the policies for the next five years of that polit- political party that 's not how it works they 're normally very long consultative processes now obviously we 've got a very short term election, so those processes are being shortened quite a lot but Here's where it gets interesting, because there are so many organisations that spend ages trying to get things into the party's manifestos, and I don't mean just shadowy corporates, but I mean local councils, charities, think tanks and campaign groups, that there's a lot of opportunity for individuals and organizations to influence what actually goes into them. Now, that, they might do that because they might think that there's a chance that the party they're trying to influence may get elected into government, so they might actually end up winning a change in the law. But even when that's not the case, it's a way of raising the profile of a particular issue. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to ask, how do you get your promise into a party's manifesto? So the first thing to think about is, how interested is the political party that you're trying to target? How interested are they in your particular issue? So let me give you an example, housing. So we all know there's a housing crisis in the UK, which has basically stemmed from a failure to build hundreds of thousands of homes over decades. So imagine you're a housing association for a second, and you've got a really clever idea to help the nation get building. Now, if that idea isn't going to cost very much money, and if the politicians know there's big media pressure for the nation to get building, you're likely to get a warmer reception than if you're going to propose something that either the party's not interested in, or it's going to cost a lot of money. So likewise, let's say you're a think tank, right? And you've got some clever ideas about reforming public services in the next parliament. And you take those ideas to the Labour Party. You know what? You're gonna get some reception, but you're not gonna get a lot because Labour are generally supportive of the public services. But if you take it to the right place in the Tory party, you'll probably get an audience. So that's the first thing you need to think about. How interested is the party in your particular issue? So the second thing you need to do is start early. So I should have said right at the beginning that if you're sitting there thinking oh there's a chance that I could get my ideas into a party's manifesto on June the 8th, not going to happen, you're a bit late. So in normal times what happens is that an organisation that wants to influence a manifesto will start about two years to 18 months before the election. This one for obvious reasons is very different but in normal times that's when they start thinking "Mm, there might be something that we could get here, a promise written in that might eventually be translated into law. The third thing you need to do is find out how your target party actually makes its policy. Now, we could spend the entire podcast just on this, but let's do a whistle-stop tour on how the three main parties make their policies, because they vary hugely. So, start off with the Tories, right? The Tories don't consult their actual grassroots members very much on policy. Instead, they rely on three main bodies. The first one is what's called the Number 10 Policy Unit. So, it's actually an organisation that's part of the Cabinet Office – but it reports to the Prime Minister. Second is the Number 10 Policy Board, so it's got a very similar name. That's made up of a few backbench Conservative MPs, and those MPs feed ideas from other MPs up to the party leadership. And finally, there's something called the 1922 Committee. So the 1922 is the committee of backbench conservative MPs in Parliament. It meets every Monday night and it is a forum at which policy ideas can be tested. So the idea is that the people writing the manifesto will float ideas with the 22, they will listen to the MPs sitting on the number 10 policy board who have a real focus on this and they will work with the party officials who sit in the number 10 policy unit and they will come up with policies together that eventually go into the manifesto. So the The Labour Party, on the other hand, are much more consultative of their wider membership. So the main body for shaping policy in the Labour Party is something called the National Policy Forum, or the NPF. The NPF is an elected group of more than 200 people, and they represent councillors, they represent trade unions, and they represent MPs. And the NPF produces reports on the different policy areas, and they're presented at Labour's annual conference in autumn. And at that conference, those ideas are either accepted or they're rejected at a vote. And on top of the MPF, there are eight policy commissions, and the policy commissions are there to look at specific ideas like defence or justice. And the idea is that those policy commissions hear evidence from experts. Now, in normal times, the manifesto is made through a consultation process. The year before an election, there's a meeting of the National Policy Forum to agree the final details of the basic outline of the manifesto. That document is then put before the Labour Party conference in the autumn, and it's voted on. But it's important to understand that conference delegates don't vote on the individual pledges in the manifesto because they're not fleshed out yet. So they vote on the broad policy areas and they just say yes or no. So for example, if you went along to conference, you will be asked to vote on a specific, but probably quite large section of Labour's, say defense pledges, and you could say yes or no. Once it's got through conference, then it has to clear what's called the National Executive Committee or the NEC, which is the body that runs the party and also the shadow cabinet. And only then do those pledges start to be translated into the actual manifesto. The Liberal Democrats are much, much more simple. So the Liberal Democrats have these conferences twice a year, the main one in autumn and then a smaller one in spring. And at those conferences, they hold debates on what party policy should be the idea is that motions are submitted to the federal conference committee a few weeks before the conference starts and then the committee decides which motions are going to be debated and it publishes them in advance of the conference in its agenda document now if you're a member of the liberal democrats you can write a motion because any member can but what you need to do is you need to get at least 10 party members or your local party to back your motion if you want it submitted to the federal conference committee so as you can imagine, if you go to Liberal Democrat conference, there are tons of motions to be debated. And if you're a member, you can register to speak for or against that particular motion. At the end of all the speeches, there's a vote held. And if it's passed, then that becomes party policy. So individual members of the Liberal Democrats can have a real impact on party policy. So, so far, we've covered the fact that we need, you need to find out how interested the party is in your particular issue. You need to normally start early and you need to find out how your party makes policy. Okay, so the next thing you need to do is you need to find out who matters, right? So imagine you've isolated your issue and you think there's a chance of it making it into the manifesto. The next thing you do is you have a look at Hansard, which is the record of spoken debate in parliament, and something we'll come back to in another podcast, and you find out which MPs ...have spoken on that particular issue in the last year or two... ...and you find the ones that you think are most likely to be supportive of that. So let's just say, for example, that is a Conservative backbench MP. What you then do is you'd contact them... ...and you'd ask them to raise it at the next meeting of the 1922 committee... Or go and speak to the relevant minister or go and speak to the relevant member of the policy board about it and see if you can push it forward. Now, you may get a no, you may get no response, but you know what? It's worth a try. Then what you do is you search social media and you find out who else is talking about that particular issue. And you find out who your allies are going to be. And you begin to work with them. You email them, you reach out to them, you get a meeting and you find out whether there's a chance of building a little supportive coalition about your issue. At the same time, of course, you have to find out who your opponents are. So find out who is going to be against your position, find out what they're saying, and think about how to counter their arguments with better ones of your own. So you map out who's important to you, both for and against, and you make sure that you have your arguments for your policy completely pat down. All right, so then the next thing you do is you find out Who else matters? Let me give you an example, right? So you're interested in energy policy, right? So in any one government, there are going to be five or six energy ministers there at one time. And you think, well, energy ministers are probably pretty influential on energy policy. You know what? They might be, but they might not be. So those ministers may have only been in their role a pretty short time. They may not be particularly interested in energy, and they may just be biding their time before they get a more interesting ministerial post. Plus... They might not have any actual great role in feeding into the manifesto process. So don't think it's all about the ministers. Each one of those ministers have what we call special advisors who will be across the brief that those ministers are working on in great detail. And they're the people you want to make friends with and try and build a relationship with. Then what you also do is you find out who sits on party policy commissions, if they exist, and you find out who the party's advisors are. So I'll give you another example. In number 10 right now, there's a guy called Josh Buckland. He is the number 10 energy advisor. So he's nothing to do with any ministers. He's nothing to do with any of their special advisors, but he's obviously incredibly important. So if you think that there's a good chance that your idea might make it into the party's manifesto, why not send him an email? Ask for a meeting go and see him and see if he'll hear you out for 20 minutes. You just never know. Okay, that leads me on to number five. So the next thing you've got to do is you've got to make sure you know what the media are saying and what the public are thinking. Politicians are very heavily influenced by what's in the media. So if something's on the front page of the Telegraph and it looks terrible for a certain group of MPs, you bet that they'll be paying attention and they'll be working out how to fix it. So find out what the media is saying about your issue. Do a Google News search and find out what the coverage has been, which, which publications are supportive, which are against, and what they're saying. Now, if you're working on a piece of policy that's really in-depth or it relates to business or you think it doesn't really make the headlines that often, then the broadsheets and magazines like The Spectator or The New Statesman or The Economist are your friends because they're, they're what policymakers read. If, on the other hand, you're interested in gauging popular opinion or trying to shape it, then it's worth having a look at the tabloids and seeing how the tabloids write about your particular issue. Then on top of that, there's things like polling and focus groups. So these are things that big corporations do all the time. They find out what the public think about a particular issue or person or problem. And that's something we'll return to in the future. And then absolutely finally, what you do is you get the party's attention. So even if you can't get the face-to-face meetings that I've been talking about, there's plenty of other ways to make people notice you. Talk to friendly journalists, give them any information you can, organise an event about their issue. Did you know, for example, that you can organise an event in Parliament? Any member of public can organise an event, it's just that Parliament doesn't advertise it very widely because everyone would want to do it. So you never know what's going to make it into a media story and what might get you that first meeting, which is your foot in the door, and then you're off. So that is a very short guide about how to influence a party's manifesto. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look beyond Westminster at what happens when high-profile politicians or civil servants want to find a non-political job. So at the end of the day, these people are only human beings, and what they want to do is use what they've learned in their previous roles to get a new and probably better job. But in this case, what they know can influence the course of government, so the stakes are a bit higher. So we're going to ask this week, what happens when a senior politician leaves politics and moves into the private sector? Is there any way of stopping that revolving door between politics and business so they're not using their knowledge to further their own careers or give private organizations a leg up with government? Well, I'm afraid the short answer is no, but this being Westminster, there is a committee involved and that committee does make judgments on this particular topic. That committee is a Cobra. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, sorry what now ACOBA so ACOBA is the advisory committee on business appointments it is a non-departmental public body or in English it is a public body which is not part of a government department and operates at arm's length from government but it does have a role in making decisions which affect people or in other words it's a group of people who make independent public policy decisions but they aren't part of a government department clear clear as mud I know So what does ACOBA actually do? So ACOBA is the body that considers applications about new jobs for former ministers and senior civil servants. So who exactly is ACOBA? Well, the chair is a lady called Angela Browning. Angela was a Tory MP between 1992 and 2010, and she was a junior minister. And alongside her, you've got a range of people who are either current or previous civil servants, people from the private sector, diplomats, and various others. So what exactly can a COBRA do? So crucially, a COBRA is only an advisory body. That means it can issue recommendations, but it doesn't have any final say on the things that it actually adjudicates on. So it's a committee that meets, it discusses, but it doesn't actually have any power. So you might ask, well, in that case, there kind of is still a revolving door. And the answer is yes. So ACOBA can criticize and it can make high profile judgments. And you might have seen it in the news recently with George Osborne as a really good example. But that's it. So if you're sitting there thinking, my God, so there's nothing that can be done if a minister wants to go and sell all his knowledge to the private sector once he leaves Parliament. Well, I'm afraid that's right. And if you want to change that, what you've got to do is get your idea into a party's manifesto and then get that party elected. And luckily, you know how to do that now. And that's about it for this week. So I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Political Outsider. I'd love to hear what you think, so send me a message on Twitter at The Ex Lobbyist or on Facebook at The Political Outsider. Otherwise, I'll see you next time. Cheers, bye.